All right, we are good to go. So, so hello everybody. It is great to be back. Um, it's been a bit of a hiatus from Zoom in general and from the community, but um, please God, we are. I'm back and um, going from strength to strength every day. And the hope is that we should, uh, you know, please God, see each other in person a lot more in the upcoming year, as well as over the Yontif in particular. So I'm just going to consistently just in the, if you look in the chat, you'll see there's a link over there that placed for the source sheets. Um, um, at some point, some, you know, people are going to join a bit later and miss it, but I'll try to keep it on and uh, keep it on. And the goal is that everyone will be able to see the sheet that I have in front of me. So this sheet, hopefully you'll be able to take with you to be able to use for the Visada. And the goal is to bring a, about a half a dozen ideas or so that you'll be able to share with your Saida be able to share with everybody and um, a lot of them are ideas that you may have heard from me in the past but I, have, I do try to bring some fresh information every year so hopefully you're finding some some uh, good stuff to deal with so let me just get my my little booklet over here all right the notes are usually good enough for me as well all right so let's start with number one so the side of this year is a bit unusual in that it falls on a Motze Shabbat um, which creates a whole bunch of different uh, questions on exactly how we're going to you know, organize the different elements of the Seder and Motzei um, Shabbat. But after Kiddush, we're going to, what we're going to focus on predominantly this evening is going to be the Magid. So we're not going to talk about the, the first part, the Karapas. We've spoken about that in previous years. This evening, we're going to focus specifically on the Magid, the actual story. So the start off of the story is we hold up the Matzah and we say, Halach ma'anya de'achlu avtana ba'arad mitzrayim. This is the bread of our affliction that our forefathers ate in the land of Egypt. And year after year, we read it and we, you know, great. Problem is a little bit later in the Haggadah, we're going to say, Matzah this matzah that we're eating, why do we eat it? Because as we were leaving Egypt, as we all know, we were in a terrible rush. And uh, we never had time for the, for the matzah to rise, for the matzah to rise to become bread. So that's why we eat matzah. Now, if you, you look at those two different parts of the of the elements of matzah, on the first one we're saying this is the bread we ate in the land of Egypt. Now, the word halachma anya, it is the bread of destitution. This is the bread of our affliction. However, you want to word that, it's talking about the bread that we ate as slaves in Egypt. That's how we start off the seder. This is the bread we ate as slaves in Egypt, and later in the seder we're going to say this is the bread we ate as we left Egypt. So, which is it? Is the bread of freedom? Was the bread of slavery. So the reality is, it's that it's a little bit of both. <clears throat> and the, the element of matzah is being able to understand that the freedom and slavery, and this is a theme I'm, I'm going to raise a, a number of times this evening. Freedom and slavery has got nothing to do with what's happening to you on the outside. Meaning, we, if you think that leaving Egypt, the freedom that we acquired on leaving Egypt was that Yesterday, we had to go out, wake up in the morning and build the pyramids, and today we don't have to, and that's why we are free. So you've missed the point of freedom. That freedom has nothing to do with our physical location, and we will come again back to this. But if you look at matzah, matzah, the difference between the matzah we ate in Egypt and the matzah we ate when we left Egypt has nothing to do with the matzah, the, the, the substance itself. All it has to do with the difference in perspective. When we're living in Egypt, why do we eat matzah? So the reason we eat matzah is because we didn't have time to bake bread. 
we didn't have the luxury of allowing our bread to leaven. So we had to basically bake it as quickly as we could. So we ate matzah. It was a bread that symbolized slavery to us. But when we left Egypt, why didn't we, why do we eat matzah? Because we're in such a rush to get out, because we were gaining our freedom. So we didn't have time for it to rise. Meaning it's the exact same bread eaten for the exact same reason that we didn't have time. But one of it you look with a with a sense of enormous, you know, sadness and depression because it is a bread of slavery. And the other one you look at with enormous amounts of positivity. And that in an essence is the concept of freedom. Freedom is not about what you are eating. It's of how you look at the things that you are eating. It's not what happens, but how the perspective you take to it. The two people in the same situation, one can feel incredibly liberated, one can feel incredibly trapped. And it is a different of mindset. And mindset is something that we often dismiss that it is something too difficult to overcome. But like a good example, like you want to talk about controlling one's emotions. So if you're in a car and someone starts hooting at you, so naturally your emotion is going to be one of anger. And you're going to turn around and you're going to get very angry. And as soon as you see it's really a friend hooting to get your attention to say hello, all of a sudden the anger switches from being anger to being happiness and joy. Now, nothing has changed. You've still been hooted at. The difference has been your perspective. How do I view that hooting at me? Is it something that is to anger and frustrate? Or is it something to create joy? It is, as the Stokes used to say, there is nothing that is good in bad, only thinking that makes it so. That matzah, whether matzah is a food of freedom or the fruit of slavery, is based on the perspective you take. So that is how we start off the Seder. And as I said, we will come back to this theme a little bit later. If you do have any questions, by the way, you can unmute yourself, but I'd prefer if you either type them or wait till the end. So that's one element. A second idea based on this concept um, of freedom of the matzah is um, something that Marosh um, uh, Shiva of uh, Maidan brought out. And he said, brings this out from the Mishnah in Perka Avot. So it says over here, he used to say, uh, more flesh, more wounds. The more possessions, the more anxiety. So, Pirkei is telling something which is a, um, which is an obvious reality, that the greater your possessions, the more concerned you are that you're going to lose your possessions. When we left Egypt, what the matzah was there to represent was a freedom that was not bound up with a sense of material wealth that would make us now, rather than being masters with wealth, becoming slaves to that wealth. Freedom is something that is allowing us to make decisions uninhibited by pressures that are coming, either from within or without. And matzah is supposed to be something so simple, to be able to gain joy in the simplicity of matzah without needing the complexity of, of chametz. That is the, the thing that brings freedom. So matzah, in its simplicity, is the thing that allows us to enjoy it, uh, enjoy freedom without feeling compelled and bound to, to wealth. Um, that's just interesting. I just by, if you go look who wrote that uh, Mishnah, it is none other than our Ramban Gamliel, who is a feature we'll see later in the Seder. Okay, that is our first idea. Idea number two. Okay. Again, I'm just, uh, give me two secs. I'm going to, once again, in our chat, I'm just going to, for those who would like to, um, give me two secs. Ah, apologies. I'll, I'll place it at the end. I'll put the, the link for it. Okay. 
So the second part of the, the again, at the Halach Mania, we say, this is a bread of fiction that our forefathers ate in the land of Israel. Anyone who needs, you should come and participate. So why Dafka now at the Seder? You know, like we, we're going to sit in our sukkah. At no point to the sukkah do we stand up and say, ah, oh, this is a, this is Sukkot. Anyone who wants to come and join us, come participate. We don't say it on Rosh Hashanah. We don't say it on Shavu. We don't say it any other time. So why Dafka on Pesach? Is this idea of inviting everybody? So, seemingly, one of the the simple reasons is that, uh, and this is why Rav Silvaitchi brought it out, is that as free people, you had an opportunity to do something that you never had as slaves. As slaves, you didn't own possessions. In fact, the whole halacha of slavery is that whatever the slave owns immediately reverts to the owner of the of his of his master's possession so if a, if a person has a slave and the slave finds a two dollar coin the master owns a two dollar coin you have no possessions with which to share so what is the first statement you can the first deed you can do as a free person so you have control of time but you have possessions and the ability to now show that you're free is inviting other people to participate as well so that's one element but there's something from a historical point of view that that uh, we read it every year but we don't always appreciate necessarily the whole um, idea behind it. And that is, when does Pesach first feature in the Torah? So you have to go to the beginning of Bereshit in uh, the story Pashat Vayera. So Vayera, it tells the story that Moshe, Rab, Moshe Avraham Avinu has just had his first, has had his Brit, and he's sitting in terrible pain. And it says, and I quote from here in Pashat Vayera, Hashem appeared to him, in the plains of Mamre, terrence of Mamre, and he was sitting in the entrance of the tent, he looked up and he saw three men standing near him. Rashi says, who are these three men? They look like three travelers, pagans, dirty pagans, and he saw them and he ran from the entrance then to go greet them and bow down. He says, my Lord, if it please you, do not go past your servant, let a little water be brought, bathe your feet, recline under the tree, fetch me, I'll fetch you some bread, and please just remain here, let me do it, and I say, sure. Now it turns out that these three individuals are not individuals at all but they are really um they are angels but what happens is moshe goes and he gets them he doesn't bring them bread interestingly enough he brings him everything else and he goes we learn from moshe this idea of you should always say little and do much moshe moshe avraham does enormous amount this is the first time we see real chesed the only time we see chesed kindness up until the torah from avraham cain and a from adam and eve from cain and abel from noah from the Tower of Babel, we haven't seen the concept of kindness exist. This is the first time we see chesed in its interest. So when does it happen? When, when, what is the date of, when do the angels come? So we don't see it so much in that story, but immediately after that story, at night time, they go into, um, into Sodom and they meet Lot and Lot offers them hospitality as well and he brings them matzah. So Rashi says, why did he bring matzah? Well, the obvious reason. It was Pesach. Why else would he bring matzah? I mean, the, the, the idea that you are now talking, you know, a thousand years, 500 years before the Exodus, but nevertheless, it's, it is time of matzah. I mean, the first time we see chesed, the first time we see kindness is with Avraham. So on the night that Avraham offered the first kindness ever, we, like Avraham Avinu, offer kindness. And that's why at the beginning of the Seder, we invite people to come join our Seder because it is the night of kindness. Interestingly enough, um, uh, completely unrelated, but the, the festival of Pesach, so it's not clear what the word Pesach means. The way that we usually translate it is that God, Pasach, that God, something, the houses of Egypt. 
So if we really, why do we eat this Pesach offering? Why do we eat it? Because when God came and smote all the, the Egyptian firstborn, he Pasach the Jewish houses. So we usually say Pasach means to jump over, skip, or pass over. And that's where the whole concept pass over. If you go look at Rashi, he says that Pasach means Chemla, means to have Rachmonis, to have mercy, to have to show kindness to, to people who are not necessarily deserving of it. We didn't deserve to get out of Egypt, but Hashem brought us out of Egypt. So even the whole name of Pesach is the name of kindness. All right, carrying on. So we've gone through a few ideas. Um, I've put them in little boxes, hopefully to make life a little bit easier to understand, but um, they are definitely more than um, than initial. Okay, now... Um, Six. All right. All right. Next idea. So we go that we are other than this is after Manishtana. I'm not going to talk about Manishtana this year, but we, we says after we said Manishtana, we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and God took us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and out, outstretched arm. And if He had not taken us out, our children and our children soon would still be slaved to Pharaoh. In Egypt, so really, we'd still be slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. Is that is that reasonable? You know, Egypt has disappeared years ago. Egypt disappeared thousands of years ago. Egypt disappeared. So to think we'd still be slaves to Pharaoh. So again, back onto this idea that leaving Egypt is one thing, but pulling Egypt out of Israel is something completely different. If you look around the world today, and I do not point fingers, but if you look to the reality of subjugated people people that have suffered terribly through their history. It is not simple the fact that when they claim their freedom, when they are emancipated, that they are able to somehow move beyond the slave mentality. If you look to dysfunction that happens, communal dysfunction that happens, that people that even when the, the prisons are opened, metaphorically speaking, that people struggle to be able to translate that into changing who they are, that now that they can take control of their destiny, that as a community, they can now, you know, confront all the challenges that freedom has to offer. So what so often happens when you free the slave, you, 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 create, you have somebody who does not know how to deal with their independence. It's like taking a domesticated animal and letting them into the wild. They don't know. So even though the lion is in captivity, and maybe it doesn't want to be in captivity, but you put it in the wild and if you haven't given it the skills on how to hunt and how to take care of itself, it will not survive. When God took us out of Egypt, it wasn't that he just took us out of Egypt, he took Egypt out of us, which meant that not only when we left Egypt, but for all time throughout, you know, time immemorial, the, the history, the cultural heritage of the Jewish people is that even though we will perpetually be the victims of society, we will be the scapegoats for definitely the last 2,000 years of exile since the destruction of the temple. Somehow we have not allowed it to create victim mentality within our people. There has never been issues within the Jewish community of of abuse on a significant, of whether it be substance abuse, poor education, lack of direction, children in, in, in trouble, uh, uh, of criminals within our midst. The vast majority of Jewish history always tells the story of people who were, you know, hell-bent on getting an education, ensuring the fact that the family unit stayed together, that there was very low levels of, uh, of dis dysfunction within the society, and that is our cultural heritage from Egypt. 
when God took us out of Egypt, he took Egypt out of us, that allowed that even though you will go through whatever you'll go through. I mean, the, the amazing fact that, that throughout the Second World War, there were the, what we suffered as a people through the Shoah, and somehow within a very short amount of time, we're able to build and defend a state and create it into the modern marvel that is the state of Israel, is a, a result of us leaving Egypt. A people who can take their destiny into their own hands. And that is something which Rav Salavechi talks about, that there are two elements within the Jewish community. There's one what we call a, um, a Brit Goral, um, a, a fate, that we as a, a community will suffer various fates throughout our history. But as a community, we have a destiny. And that destiny was created when we set foot out of Egypt. And so that is why if we need to say that even though, you know, our forefathers had had Hashem not taken us out, even if we weren't be physically enslaved to Egypt, emotionally and spiritually and uh, psychologically, we would never have gotten out. So that's the concept of Egypt. But then it continues, it says, and even if we're all sages, all men of discerning and elders and knowledgeable of the Torah, we still have to tell the story of the leaving of, of Egypt. So if you're a very wise person, why are you got to tell the story? So the simple understanding is that why do wise people tell the story? It's because when you tell the story to other people, you always learn something new. And so, you know, where do we learn something new? We say, um, you know, who is wise? He learns from every person. Yeah, so even the Chachamim, even if you're a Chacham, you can learn from every person. But what's quite amazing is if you look at the story, who teaches us in the Torah, in the, in the, in the Mishnah, in Pirka Avot, in the Ethics of the Fathers, who is a wise person? He learns from every man. Someone named Ben Zoma. Where do we see Ben Zoma? Ben Zoma is the story that's going to come immediately after this. He says, even if you're a wise man, men of discernment, and then they go into the stories of the five rabbis in Bnei Brak. And Rabbi Laza ben Azariah says, even though I'm a man of 70 years, I never merited to be able to say the leaving of Egypt not until Benzoma came and taught me. Who's Benzoma? He's not Rabbi Benzoma. He, we don't know anything about Benzoma, but there is a teaching of his. Ezu Chacham, who's a wise person, he learns from everybody. So we see within the, that, that story that we can learn from Benzoma, we can learn that everybody is obligated to leave. Now, there's a second element. <laughs> which I'll, I'll mention here. Sorry, I don't have this in the notes, but I'll mention it here. The reason that the Chachamim are still obligated, even though they might know the entire Torah, the reason they're obligated to tell the story of leaving Egypt is because there's a difference between a mitzvah of remembering leaving Egypt and telling the story of leaving Egypt. Remembering, and there are multiple times that we have to remember different things. We have to remember Shabbat. Zachot, Yom Shabbat, remember Shabbat. You should remember leaving Egypt, you say, which we do every every time we make Kishvar. You know, Zechel Itziat Mitzrayim. We have to remember creation. Zechel Masebereshit. We have to remember Amalek. You know, Zachor Tashia Salacha Amalek. There are multiple times. But the mitzvah of the night of the side is not to remember leaving Egypt. It's to tell the story of leaving Egypt. The difference between remembering and telling a story is that remembering is a matter of history. It's telling you something that happened to other people. Telling the story is experiencing and telling something that happened to me. And we'll touch a bit on, on this later, but there's a very big difference between the personal experience that you need to tell. I'm sure um, we all have members of the family. I am probably the guilty one in the Krebs family of telling personal anecdotes consistently. And uh, dare I say, as a rabbi, you've probably heard some of my stories, definitely some of my bad jokes you've heard on multiple occasions. But when you tell them, 
it's because it is so personal, because it's so real, and it becomes something that you can share in a much stronger way than if I'm just telling you something that's happened to somebody else. So that is uh, the next part of the Haggadah. Okay, carrying on. All right, so this is a, a little bit of a, a deeper idea, but it's something that I've struggled with over the years, and it's in the part of the Haggadah, which we do the Yishu uh, Amda, so we say, you know, in every generation, they want to, they strive up, come up against us and want to destroy us. And Hashem takes it, and, but Hashem saves us. So that's all well and good. Then it goes and it says, go and learn what Lavan Aramean sought to do to fight. And it quotes four verses, four verses that And we'll go through these verses, I'll just Scroll this down because I'll quote the verses here. And he says, And Ramian sought to destroy my father, went into Egypt with the meager numbers and sojourned there. Then he became great and populous nation. And we take the four verses and we we elaborate on them. He went down to Egypt, was forced to go down. He didn't want to. He went like Gursham to sojourn there, not to go there to permanently settle, but to sojourn. I imagine we all remember this uh, particular uh, episode. But then it comes to the uh, the third verse. It says, And we cried out to the Lord of our God of our ancestors, and the Lord heard our voice. He saw our, fl- our affliction, our toil, and our duress. So I'm just skipping over the first two parts. It says, The Lord heard our voice, as it is stated, and the God heard their groans. And God remembered, He's coming to Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. And He saw our affliction. This refers to the separation from intimacy. Never understood what this had to do with Pre-shoot me Derek Eretz. He saw affliction, and this was the separation of intimacy. What, what intimacy? What separation of intimacy? I had no idea what it was talking about. And this is our toil. This refers to the killing of our sons. As I say to every boy that is born, throw him into the line. Every girl, he shall keep alive. Okay. So what, what's this got to toil? It's amaleinu. So I heard another idea, a beautiful idea from Rav Moshe Lichtenstein. It's also the son of Rav Aaron Lichtenstein, Maroshi Shira. And he says this term to toil comes up a number of times in the Tanakh. Amel, amal is referring to a certain kind of uh, of work, specifically purposeless work. It's when you work and work and work. So they tell stories of when they used to get um, they used to get prisoners to crush down rocks into uh, into sand, and then at the end of the day, once they'd done this enormous work, they'd just throw the sand into the river. Purposeless work. It is nothing more demoralizing than waking up and feeling that nothing you do matters. And that is Amaleinu. Now, what it, why is this the toil? What's it got to do with, 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 with throwing the children into the Nile? What's, what's one got to do with the other? It says that the toil, when, when, you, when you as a people feel that you have no future, there's no tikva whatsoever, so that's Amaleinu. And so when your children are being grabbed, grabbed from you and your future has been thrown into Nile, there is no point to existence. That's the Amaleinu. So what happens when you realize that you have no, no purpose to your existence? He sees your affliction, separation from intimacy. What is separation from intimacy? It is not that the Egyptians came and separated men from women. It's based on something that Rashi alludes to. Rashi doesn't quote the whole Medrash. But when Moshe is born, it says, 
A man went from the house of Levi and he took a woman from Levi and they conceived and they give birth to Moshe and they hide him for three months. Okay. Now, the problem is that it, that sounds like they got married and gave birth to Moshe. But we already know Moshe has two older siblings, uh, Miriam and, and Aaron. So, so what do you mean they got married? So Rashi says, ah, oh, really what happened, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here and I can send you the whole source, but the Rashi is over here. What happened is they were married. And they had two kids. And then this decree came out to kill the children. So what happened? Amram, Moshe's father, says, what's the point of having children? If we have children, they're just going to be killed. So you know what? I'm not going to have any children. So he separates from his wife. And being that he was a leader in Israel, all the men separated from their wives. That is, and he saw our affliction, this is the separation from intimacy. That men refused to have wives to have family because it was pointless because of the toil because the whole concept was pointless they refused and they heard our groans the native one of the commentators uh, was the Rosh Hashim Velozhin native in the 1800s he says that God heard our groans groaning is a is an animalistic sign of absolute hopelessness and that's what it's talking about, the suffering in Egypt. It wasn't that they were beating us. It wasn't that they were making us work hard. It was this idea that it felt completely purposeless. And it caused us to refuse to be with our, with our wives and our husbands, refuse to have a family. And the groaning was just the purposeless of our existence. Some of the commentaries want to ex explain the fact that maror, that maror, the concept of bitterness, is, is not a matter of being, it's not supposed to be birdie, it's supposed to be completely bland, it lacks taste, you know, it, it is something that when you eat something that's bitter, you will need to add something to it, you add salt, you add sweetness, like coffee, in coffee you put something in because most people can't stand bitterness because it, it, it lacks, lacks real taste, and that's what Egypt, the suffering of Egypt was, so that was a, an explanation, but I've looked and seen about that third verse, I thought it was quite Carrying on, now this is the entire passage. Now, unbeknownst to many people, when we start taking these four verses and and um, and breaking up into what each word means, it's it's really a it's a Talmudic uh, it's a Gemara. It's really trying to look at this whole um, passage as a Talmudic um, as a Talmudic uh, study session. And so what it does is it takes each word and each word it, it explains it. So if I were to say to you, for example, I walked across the room, as opposed to I crept across the room, you would get a very different image in your mind. And if you were to read it in a book, you'd understand that the author wanted to, you know, arise within your, uh, in, in your imagination, a very different visual between using the word to walk into work to crept. So, so to over here, when Hashem comes and he gives us the Torah, he, every single word is pregnant with meaning. And so what does this word mean over to that word? For example, he went down to Egypt. So the word he went down to Egypt is ve'yeyred mitzrayim. Ve'yeyred doesn't mean the same as to just go down. Like when uh, when you go down, it's ve'yored or ve'yarad or ve'yerdu, like whatever the case might be. But ve'yeyred has an implication that you are making someone go down. So what does it mean? This is, Yaakov was forced to go down. Why? There was a famine in the land of Israel, and there was food in Egypt, and Yosef was in, so he's forced to go down. 
So these are four verses. Now, when do these verses actually come in the Torah? So you see it's here in Deuteronomy 26. This is not verses that come out of the Exodus, but rather is the story that will take place in seven weeks time on, on, on Shavuot. That on Shavuot, you bring your first fruits and you come up to the Kohen and you would say to, you'd bring your basket with your first fruits and you'd give them to the Kohen and you'd say, you know, Vanita Marta, you should say to him, you know, that this is the story of Jewish history. We went down to Egypt, we were enslaved, we became prosperous, we were enslaved, we cried out to Hashem, and Hashem took us out with great number signs and wonders. End of story. That is our what we do at the Seder. The problem with it is, if you actually read what we say to the Kohen, they're not four verses, but five verses, of which the fifth verse never gets mentioned in the Haggadah. And these are the ones. We say, went down to Egypt. The second one, Egypt dealt harshly with us, oppressed us, and placed heavy bondage upon us. The third one, we cried out to Hashem, and then we, we saw our plan applied. That's the verse we just did. Then the fourth one, and the Lord freed us from Egypt, the mighty hand, and ushers our awesome power, signs and wonders, and that's when we do the ten plagues. But the fifth verse, he brought us to this place, gave us this land, land flowing with milk and honey. We never mention that. Why, why not? So I understand a little bit of the historical context of Haggadah. That even though there's been a mitzvah to tell the story of leaving Egypt, the Haggadah, as we have it, is an exilic, exilic document. It was written after the destruction of the temple. And so we're living in a land of exile. So up until you know, the first four verses have all come true. But the fifth verse is no longer true. We're no longer in the land of Israel. And so how do we say, and he brought us to this place and gave us this land when you're sitting in Babel, in Babylon, or you're sitting in Germany or Ro Russia or Poland or Australia, how do you say it? So it was it was left out. Um, there are many in Israel who say it now. They say we've come back to the land, so we are no longer in the diaspora. At least we're not in the diaspora as we as we used to. So we we put this verse in, and there are many big rabbis that say this. But what happened in the diaspora is we brought. To go with these four verses, we have four cups, and we bring a fifth cup. But the fifth cup is not a cup that we drink. It's one that we put on the side. And who's it for? So that's for Elijah. So why is Elijah there? Because Elijah announces the coming of Mashiach. But more importantly, Elijah will be ushering in our return to the land of Israel. And that's why this fifth verse goes with that fifth cup. It is a hope and a prayer for, you know, for millennia. One day we will go back. It is an unbelievable bracha to be able to say it. This man has that now there's potentially we can say the first. Okay. How are we doing? Time-wise. Haven't spoken for this long in a while, so we're just trying to get back into it. Okay, Maro. So we go to Rabban Gamil. Who does not mention these three things does not fulfill his obligation. Pesach Matzah Maro. So Pesach, we spoke a little bit about the concept of Pesach being Rachmonas and having mercy. Matzah, we spoke about earlier. Maro. So why do we eat Maro? This Maro that we're eating for sake, what is it? To commemorate that the Egyptians embittered the lives of our ancestors in Egypt, as it stated, and they made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick. All matters. So why do we eat it? To remind us of the bad. Why on earth are we reminding us of the bad? So it's just commemorative that um, you know, we should always remember the bad. You know, with the good goes the bad. This is nice of our freedom. Why are we remembering the bad? 
So the Svatimet brings this idea, and it comes in a number of different ways. I saw it in a, a book called the Kitab Sofer um, as well. And he says as follows. Why did we have to go through Egypt? That's you know, all well and good. I've got a good idea. God, don't send us to Egypt. And we don't have to take us out of Egypt. So you're like, you know, fantastic. Um, I recall my, my late Rosh Yeshiva, Rav Noach Weinberg, told the following story. He said that he was speaking to a guy who was, uh, you know, not in his rabbi. I don't have to, be, you know, I don't have to do all this religious stuff because God and I, you know, we've got a great relationship. So Rav Weinberg said, well, how so? He says, well, I was driving through the Catskills on my motorbike and I came around a sharp corner and there was a truck coming in the opposite direction. And I, and I, you know, I had to swerve to him. So I went off the side of the mountain. And as I was in the air, you know, I prayed to God and I thought, this, that's it. And, and God, um, but God allowed me to survive. So you see me and God, I don't need religion. So Rav Noach said to him, yeah, but who do you think threw you off the mountain in the first place? And that's the key over here, is that God don't send us to Egypt, and you don't have to take us out of Egypt. You know, like I, I, a few weeks ago when I when I first went into shul, so I did something good. You bench Gomel, and that's when you've been through a very harrowing experience, and you've come out on the other side. So you thank Hashem for allowing you to survive. Um, so I got an idea. Don't make it happen, and I don't have to say the bracha. So I'm thank you, thank you. He said, don't make me sick, and I don't have to. You don't have to make me better. So why that? says is because understand that Egypt was an experience and it might not have been a pleasant experience but it was a very positive experience and to understand the difference that every experience that Hashem takes us through all the maror of life is there to allow us to have an experience of which we go through that we could not have grown through had we not had that experience it is a bracha to be able to come through it because we are now greater people as a result. Hashem, yes, he took us in Gula, he redeemed us, but the redemption was because we needed the Egypt experience, we needed the Maror to be able to become greater, to become the Jewish people, to become this spectacular and splendid nation that we have become. That despite our spawn numbers, how we are so influential in every area of the world, you needed the maror to do that. And that's why we eat the maror. Not only, so the Svatimet says, not only is that we needed that experience to have it. The way Ketav Sofer says it, um, it says like when you wash clothes, I, I don't know how they wash clothes in the, in the 1800s, but apparently the way they washed it was with some form of coal, but you would make the clothes much dirtier before you made them cleaner. In order to make something clean, you need to first make it dirty. So I suppose like building a building, before you build up, you need to dig down. Same thing, in order to have the matzah, you need the maror. So that is one point. The second point again, and this is something which is a bit of that cultural heritage which we spoke about earlier, that in order to, to, um, to be able to kind of people that would not be victims, you needed to have that experience that the maror strengthened us as a people gave us an ability that if we were able to survive Egypt, we could survive anything. So whatever the world has thrown at us since, the only reason we could survive it and the reason we could thrive despite it was very much because of this concept of maror. That maror is very much part of our experience. And it is a part that, albeit it is unpleasant, it is incredibly important. And so one can, you know, say with great joy 
that's a, it's a bit of a, a bizarre word to say that this was an unpleasant experience that I'm so appreciative to have having gone through. And that is, uh, that is the, the message of the moment. Okay. So once we finish the Haggadah, the, the Magid part of the Haggadah, we get to the second cup of wine. We, we've said the first two verse, uh, the first two um, things of Halal. And now we're going to do the break prayer gaffin. But there's a bracha we make. Baruch Hashem. You know, thank you that took us out. It redeemed us and redeemed our forefathers. And please, God, should we redeem us again in the future? Then we should build the temple and be able to offer the sacrifices. And we say, And we should thank you with a new song. On our redemption and of the restoration of ourselves. Gula is one form of redemption. Pidion Shuim is this idea of redeeming captives. So Pidut Nafshenu is the redeeming of our souls. What's the difference between our redemption and the redeeming of our souls? So um, the uh, Nativ, I mentioned a little earlier, it says, there's a, it says the difference is Gulatenu is leaving Egypt, but Pidut Nafshenu is freeing you. That there's freedom from within and there's freedom from without. So as an individual, you know, freedom from without is not that important, relatively speaking, because you can be free from without and still be a slave within. But on the flip side, you can be, if you're free within, if you have a free mindset, it doesn't matter what people throw at you. I was watching an interview with uh, Natan Sharansky. It was from a few years ago, and someone came up on my YouTube feed. And it's unbelievable. You know, he said he was in solitary confinement for, for years. And how did he get through it? He says, because as long as I was defiant and as long as I, I did not succumb, I was always free. They were the slaves. I was free. It's an unbelievable perspective. So here's an interesting halachic point. This is brought up in, um, in many of the poskim. So in the morning, we make a number of different blessings. So one of the blessings is the Shalom Sani Goy or Shalom Sani didn't make me a non-Jew. Shalom Sani Avid did not make me a slave. So it was a question asked to Rabbi Ephraim Oshri. So Rabbi Ephraim Oshri was the Rav in, in the Kovna Ghetto in the Second World War. And in, in the heart of the ghetto, when they were taken out to, for slave labor, the question was asked, do, how do we, do we make the bracha? Shalom Sani Avid. Shalom Sani Avid. So every morning, thank you God for not making me a slave. We are slaves. We are slaves to the Nazis. So do we make the bracha or not? So he said, you do make the bracha. Because a slave has got nothing to do with your what's happening to you physically. That even if you are technically speaking a slave, so long as your mindset is that of a free person, when you set foot out of Egypt, you left Egypt behind, you became a free person. And you will always be a free person. You can never be a slave unless you allow yourself to be a slave. And that is Pedut Nafshainu. Thank you, Hashem, not only for getting us out of Egypt, but thank you, Hashem, for, make, for allowing us to be free. But that freedom is, is only so much that Hashem can give us, and then it's amount that we have to be able to be able to run with it, to be able to um, to to accept the fact that our freedom is very much in our hands and not in the hands of anyone else. All right, uh, two more two more points, and then we'll open it up. Okay, Chad Gadia. So this is the last part of the side, and uh, and it's, uh, it's it's a cute song. And the Vilna Gaon, amongst others, go into a lot of detail of what, you know, what each of the different things represent. 
and it says, and this is the last line, and then Hashem came and he killed the angel of death who killed the slaughterer, who killed the bull, who killed, drank the water, that extinguished the fire, burnt the stick, hit the dog, bit the cat, ate the kid, and my father will put two Zeusim. So what's the whole cup of the story? So too often in life, we ask the question, like, well, it's slightly different. We think we know why things happen. That for years, for 2,000 years, the church said that the re it was obvious that God had rejected the Jewish people because of the downtrodden nature of the Jews in the diaspora, and that the church were the new chosen, the Christianity were the new chosen people. And theologically, it, it's, you know, to many people it made sense. The Christians are living good, and the Jews are really suffering. So it makes sense that God prefers them. But when you look at a story in the middle and you don't see the end of the story, you you... You, you misunderstand Hashem's involvement in the world. Things will happen that look like they're not going according to plan. But ultimately, who comes at the end of the story? Hashem. Now, to, to see this in Tanakh, um, you look no further than Joseph. When Joseph, you know, arrives in Egypt and reveals himself to his brothers, he says, I'm your brother that you sold down to Egypt. Do not be scared that you sold me here because Hashem sent me here in order to provide for you in the time of famine. And albeit that we, it's quite noble of Joseph to say that the reality is, is that's not what the story is. Hashem sent Joseph down to Egypt in order that his family would come, in order that they would be enslaved in Egypt. Don't jump the gun. Hashem runs the world, and you don't know why things happen. Now, why do things happen, Rabbi, is a question. Why did this happen? Why did that happen? Oh, I, it's see, I could see the hand of Hashem making this happen. You don't know what Hashem's plan is. You just know that Hashem's the director. And Hashem is running the world. And Hashem knows what's going on. Hashem's captaining the ship. And to stop second-guessing and thinking that this is... And that's how we understand it. That ultimately, especially in the concept that the Haggadah is one very much a, um, a story of exile, is that whatever is happening in the world as we look outside and we see the pogroms, we see the crusades, we see the shoahs that have transpired of our history, is that trying in this dark night, you know, to so, somehow feel the feelings of freedom, we look and say Hashem ultimately runs the world. Don't be, dis, you know, don't be persuaded by what you think you see on the outside. Hashem runs the world. And that's how we end the Seder with a Chad Gadya. Now, even though that is the official loss, I actually came across this speech, which um, is, I think is a beautiful way to start the Seder. So this is a speech that Ben-Gurion gave to the Peel Commission. The Peel Commission, 1936. So there was there were terrible Arab uprisings. There's a lot of um, political turmoil and violence in Israel when it was under the British mandate. And the United Nations wanted to look into what eventually became the partition plan, but the Peel Commission to try to figure out on how we go into... Um, what are we going to do with the land of Israel? Is it was it going to be set into an, an Arab country and a Jewish country? But this is what Ben Gurion said. So 300 years ago, there came to New World a boat, and his name was the Mayflower. The Mayflower's landing on Plymouth Rock was one of the greatest historical events in the history of England and the history of America. But I'd like to ask any Englishman sitting here, there in the commission, here in the commission, what day did the Mayflower leave port? What date was it? I'd like to ask Americans, do they know what date the Mayflower left port in England? How many people on the boat? Who were the leaders? What kind of food did they eat on the boat? More than 3,300 years ago, long before the Mayflower 
Our people left Egypt and every Jew in the world, wherever he is, knows what day they left. And he knows what food they ate. And we still eat that food every anniversary. And we still know who our leader was. And we sit down and we tell the story to our children and our grandchildren in order to guarantee that it will never be forgotten. And we say two slogans. Now we may be enslaved, but next year we'll be free people. Now we are behind the Soviet Union in their prison. Now in Germany, where Hitler's destroying us. Now we're scattered throughout the world, but next year we'll be in Jerusalem. There will come a day they will come home to Zion, to the land of Israel. That's the nature of the Jewish people. And that is the mission of the Seder, is to drum into ourselves and our children that we are part of a glorious history. It is our story. It is our memory, our collective memory that brings us together tonight. And is that collective memory that you are handing on the baton to the next generation. So to that end, I'm going to once again in the if you look in your in the in the chat over there is the uh, the link to the PDF of the source sheets that we had tonight, and hopefully you'll be able to uh, use it if if for some reason you can't get it. Let me know; I can email it to you. But um, thank you very much. I uh, wish you all a shana achshana achag kasher Um If anyone has any questions, by all means, you can uh, unmute yourself and ask away. Tomorrow night, FYI, tomorrow night we're going to try. If anyone's interested, it's just going to be a Q&A. If you've got any kashut questions, kashering questions, seder questions, or anything of the like, philosophical, theological questions, anything you want, tomorrow night we're going to be on at eight again. Other than that, um, I open the floor. Can you unmute yourself? You can now unmute yourself. So if anyone would like to unmute yourself, by all means, I'm going to unpin myself. Okay. Anybody? Going. Going. Gone. All right. Well, thank you so much, everybody. It's been fantastic to see you all. I wish you Chag Samach. I look forward to you tomorrow night. And if not, over you on to. Chag Samach. Chag Samach. Rabbi. Yes. It's Daryl. Hi. In the very beginning, I missed the first couple of minutes, but you were talking about, I think it was Abraham in the tent when the three visitors came. Yeah. And then the line at the bottom the line at the bottom of that piece said, Rashi said they ate unleavened bread because it was Pesach. I don't understand. How could it have been Pesach with Abraham? So you're 100% right. And I, I did raise that. I said it's it's a bit bizarre understanding how it is that they're Pesach. So I can give you a short answer and a, lo a long answer. The short answer is Rashi is just trying to deal with this concept of how on earth, why on earth were they eating matzah? And so it was the timing. So, and, and the idea I was giving is that, um, that, that Pesach and kindness go together. And that's why we invite people to our Seder. That's how we start the Seder of kindness. Why? Because the first time we ever see kindness in the Torah was on the night of Pesach with Avraham. So that's, that was the general idea. On a technical word, why on earth are they eating matzah? So the short answer is, um, you know, coincidental. They were baking matzah and it just happened to be the 14th of Nisan or 15th of Nisan. And that would one day be Pesach. That's one answer. Oh, okay. That's one answer. <laughs> Another answer, which is a bit more mystical, is the idea that if you tap into the idea that that one day this was going to be Pesach, so we know that this is a time of unleavened bread. But that's a bit more mystical, so beyond my pay grade, I'm afraid. But uh, 
Thank you. No problem. Great to see you. Hug Samar. Hug Samar. Anybody else? Still a lot of people on, so I assume people are waiting for something. Have some great jokes. <laughs> I can tell jokes. I can. Uh... Yeah. All right. How are you anyway? Thank God. Every day a little bit stronger, a little bit better. Um, um, you know, taking it uh, day by day, day by day. Good. All right, everybody. Well, wish you Laila Tov. Chag Samach. Please, God, will see you over Yontif. Chag Samach. Chag Samach. Chag Samach.